Church, let's bow together for another word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for the the grace that we stand in in Christ this morning. We're thankful for the true and better Adam who has come to save hell-bound men and women like us. And we come with our trust firmly in Jesus, trusting in what he's done for us, resting in his righteousness, holding to his death on our behalf. And Lord, as we turn our attention now to scripture, I pray, Lord, that we would just be Um, caught afresh by the glory of what you've done for us in sending your son to us. And we pray all of this in his great name. Amen. Well, church, if you would, open your Bibles up with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 together. Most of you um, will probably be familiar with the name Larry King. If you're under 25, you might not know who Larry King is. But for a long time, 25 years, I guess, or so, Larry King hosted a show every night that aired on television where he would interview all kinds of famous people. He would interview politicians and entertainers and musicians. Altogether, I think he did around 60,000 interviews in his life. Everybody from George Bush to Vladimir Putin and um, Stevie Wonder and everybody in between. Well, on one occasion... um, Uh, Larry King was asked what his fantasy interview would be. In other words, if he could interview anyone who had ever lived throughout all of history, who would he like to interview? And Larry King, who is not, was not a believer, said that if he could interview anyone from all of history, he would choose to interview Jesus Christ. And when he was asked what question he would like to ask Jesus, Larry King said, I would ask him if he believed that he was born of a virgin. Because whatever his answer is, it would change the course of the world. We usually refer to it as the virgin birth, but probably the better phrase would be virgin conception. Was Jesus Christ conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary with no aid from any earthly father at all? Was it a supernatural conception. You know, you really could say that there's, there's no miracle in the Bible quite like that one. You know, most of the miracles in the Bible get repeated. Some of them get repeated multiple times. So there's not just one person in the Bible who God raised from the dead. There are numerous people. Jesus didn't just multiply food to feed hungry people once. Jesus didn't just give sight to a blind man once. Jesus didn't just heal crippled people once. Jesus performed all of those miracles multiple times. But there is only one virgin conception. There's no other miracle like it in the Bible. And it really does get down to the heart of what we celebrate as Christians at Christmas. Yeah, of course, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. But who exactly is Jesus? That's one of the great things about so many of the Christmas hymns that that we sing. The old Christmas hymns testify, many of them, in such clear ways, who Jesus is. We sang Joy to the World earlier. Joy to the World isn't written to declare who Jesus is necessarily, but even in that hymn, Isaac Watts says, Joy to the World, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Probably my favorite Christmas hymn of them all is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That was written couple hundred years ago by Charles Wesley and then George Whitfield, the great preacher, made some alterations and amendations to it. 
And, and it might be one of the most theologically dense hymns that we sing in the church. J- just think of the one verse that says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. And then I love this next line. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Think of all we're told about who Jesus is just in that one verse. We're told he is the everlasting Lord, that he's the Godhead veiled in flesh. He's the offspring of a virgin's womb. He is incarnate deity. He is our Emmanuel. Well, a lot of those titles get fleshed out in the passage we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 1. And one quick thing before we start reading Matthew. Remember what we have with the gospel of Matthew. So the four gospel writers, they're all giving us the story of Jesus' life, but they're all writing to make a particular point. And the main point that Matthew is wanting to make is that Jesus, this Jesus he's describing in his gospel, is the promised king, the king the Old Testament told us about, the king that the world is waiting for. And so everything in the gospel of Matthew is designed to highlight the majesty of Jesus, the the royalty of Jesus, the sovereignty of Jesus. And that's why Matthew, if you're there, you'll notice the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel are just giving us the genealogy of Jesus. And Matthew's doing that as a a way of giving us the credentials of Jesus as the Messiah. He wants us to know that Jesus is in the line of Abraham. This is that seed of Abraham God told us back in Genesis who would bring blessings to all the nations of the world. And even more, Matthew wants us to see that this Jesus is in the line of David, the kingly line. This is that promise God made to David in 2 Samuel where he told David that one of his sons would sit on the throne as king forever. And Matthew wants us to see Jesus is that king in the line of David. And so he's given us the the messianic credentials of Jesus in the first 17 verses. Who is this Jesus we celebrate? Well, the first 17 verses answer that by saying, he is the son of David. But that's not all that needs to be said. Yes, Jesus is the son of David, but he's also the son of God. And that's the point that Matthew makes in the next section. It's verses 18 through 25. And that's where we're going to turn our attention this morning. If your Bible's open to Matthew 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. And we'll go through the end of the chapter. This is Matthew writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she'll bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. 
So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. And then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him Mary, his wife. And did not know her until she had brought forth her her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. And we're going to look at this passage under two very broad headings. Here's the first thing. Number one, I want to see the dilemma. You'll notice that right away in verse 18, we're introduced to the, the two main characters, human characters anyway, that we think about in the Christmas story. We're introduced to... Mary and Joseph. You, you might have noticed when we read Luke 2 earlier in the service that the points made in Luke 2 that Mary and Joseph were from the, the city of Nazareth. And I'm probably overstepping to call Nazareth a city. It would be better to call it a town, maybe even a village, because archaeologists tell us that Nazareth had a population of, at the most, a couple hundred people. More likely, the population was right around 100. So this is a, a tiny little farming community in the northern part of Israel. There were no major roads that ran through Nazareth. It's not significant in the biblical storyline in that. Nazareth isn't mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. You won't find Nazareth mentioned in any Greek writings outside of the Bible. So Nazareth is the kind of place that 99.9% of the people in the world would have never even heard of. So the story begins in an unlikely place and then we're introduced to these two very unlikely people. Mary, of course, was just a, a poor teenaged girl. The way, the way they thought about it back then was that as soon as young people passed through puberty, they believed that they should be moving toward marriage. And so most scholars think that Mary was young to mid-teen years at this point, 13 to 15 years old probably. Now that's, that's hard to even wrap your mind around, isn't it, if you're a parent or a grandparent. I was thinking this week of where that would fall. Ellie is 16, so she was younger than Mary. I think Selah Grace is 12, so she was just a little older than Selah. I guess that's probably about the range that, that Abby would fall into. So she's a, an early teenager. I know because of the influence of Roman Catholicism that all the paintings of, of Mary present her as an adult woman with a nice robe and a halo over her head. But that's not who Mary was. She was a, a poor peasant girl. And Joseph was probably just a little bit older than she was. We're told later in Matthew, Joseph is described as, the, the way it's translated is, he's described as being a carpenter. But the Greek word that used just, that's used just means a, a builder, a, a craftsman. Maybe he was a craftsman with wood, more of what we think of as a carpenter, or, or even likely he was working with stone. He's something of a, a stonemason. Most of the houses in Israel this time are made out of stone, and so that's, that's likely what Joseph is involved in. He's just a common working man. But the key word I want you to notice in verse 18 is we're told that Mary and Joseph were betrothed. I don't know when the last time you've used the word betrothed in your conversations are. I, I don't know that I ever have. We tend to use the word engaged, but engagement really isn't a fair parallel to betrothal because our engagements don't carry very much weight to them, do they? 
You, you, can, you can get engaged on a Friday and end the engagement on a Saturday in our culture, and there aren't, aren't really any repercussions to that other than, than a mad fiancé. But our engagements don't really have any strings attached. But that's not how betrothal works. Betrothals had serious strings attached. In fact, the way that they viewed marriage then was, was families were deeply involved in marriages. Uh, they, were, they were typically arranged marriages by the parents. So in our culture, we think, of, we think of marriage coming after love, that you find somebody who you love in your heart and then you marry them. That's not the way that they thought about it. They thought that, they thought that marriage was far too weighty and far too significant for it to be determined by the emotional whims of a young person. And so families would choose the person who they thought would make a good spouse for their child. And the idea was that love would follow that, that you would get married, and then you would learn to love the person that you were married to. And that's the way it would have worked with Mary and Joseph. This would have been family involvement toward this. Once the, once the marriage was decided, a dowry would be paid, and then the couple would be betrothed. And once you were betrothed in this culture, you were considered legally husband and wife. You, you'll even notice that reflected in the passage that we read. Look again. Look down at verse 19. Notice what it says about Joseph. Then Joseph, her husband. Look down at verse 20, the second part of verse 20. The angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife. Do you notice Joseph is called Mary's husband and Mary is called Joseph's wife even though they haven't actually been through the wedding ceremony yet. And that's because in this world as soon as you were betrothed you were considered legally and in the eyes of the public you were considered to be husband and wife. And it would usually be somewhere around 12 months between the time of betrothal to the actual wedding date. And during that year-long period. The family would be preparing for the wedding celebration. The husband would spend his time during that interval preparing a house. He's getting somewhere ready that he and his new wife can move into after the, the wedding. And then that year period was also seen as a time of testing. It was a time for the betrothed couple to prove their character and to prove their fidelity to each other. And at the end of that, they would go through the wedding ceremony. Immediately after the wedding ceremony, the, the marriage would be consummated physically. And then they would have a week-long wedding celebration. But as soon as the couple was betrothed, they were looked at as husband and wife. All that was waiting was for the marriage to be consummated on the wedding day. But once you were betrothed to somebody, if you wanted to break it off, you had to go through legal divorce proceedings to bring it to an end. If someone committed sexual immorality, was unfaithful during the betrothal period, that was viewed as adultery. And that's the position that Joseph finds himself in in these verses. He was betrothed to Mary, no doubt. He spent months now preparing a house that they're going to live in. He, he's been around her enough that he thinks he knows her, he thinks he knows her character, and then he finds out that she's pregnant. And he knows it's not his because their relationship has been sexually pure. Now this is one of those places that I would love it if the Bible gave us more information than it does. Like I would like to know how did Joseph find out 
that this woman he's betrothed to is pregnant. How did that news get passed? Because we, we know the general timeline here, right, from the other Gospels. We know that it was a good bit before this that an angel had appeared to Mary, and he had told her what was going to happen. Gabriel, you can read about it in Luke's Gospel, Gabriel before this appeared to Mary and told her she was going to give birth to the Messiah. God was going to enter into his creation in the flesh through her womb. And then to encourage Mary, do you remember what Gabriel also told her? He told her that her older cousin Elizabeth, who had been barren her whole life, that Elizabeth was also pregnant. And so Mary, when she gets this news, she tears off to see her cousin Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist. And she spends the next three months with Elizabeth. And then she goes back home. And so by the time Mary comes back home, she's three months pregnant. Maybe, maybe there's a little baby bump showing by this point. And I don't know if she pulled Joseph aside and told him what was going on, or if she has a family member pass on the news to Joseph that Mary's pregnant. And can you imagine how devastating that news would have been to Joseph, this woman he thought he was going to spend the rest of his life with, it looks to him like she's been unfaithful. And that's where our, our text is picking up today. Joseph, in his mind, has a couple of options in front of him, one of which is not to go forward with the wedding. If you're in this situation in Jewish culture and the woman you're betrothed to seems to be unfaithful, you do not go forward with the wedding. In fact, what does the Old Testament law call for in situations like this? Do you know? Deuteronomy 22, it calls for execution. If a woman is unfaithful in this betrothal, both her and the man she's unfaithful with are to be stoned to death. Now, by Jesus' time, that was rarely ever actually carried out. So to Joseph's mind, the only option he has in front of him now is he's got to divorce her. The only question is, how should he divorce her? Remember now... Jewish society is very much a shame-honor culture. It means everything is about the honor of your name and the dignity of your family. If you are shamed in Jewish culture, you do whatever it takes to reestablish your honor and to humiliate whoever shamed you. Just as a quick side point, this is, this is what made the story of the prodigal son so astounding in that world because... When that son went to his father and demanded his inheritance and then left, he was bringing huge shame on his father, tremendous shame on the family. And for him to come back sometime later, having spent all the inheritance, everybody would expect the father in that situation to do whatever he needed to do to reestablish his honor, to humiliate the son who's brought shame on the name of the family, to belittle the son and reestablish the dignity of the family. That's why it's shocking in that story when the father runs out to the son and wraps his armor, arms around him and lavishes him with all of this affection. That's not what you do when you've been shamed. You humiliate who shamed you for your dignity. And that's, that's what everyone would have expected Joseph to do. They would have expected Joseph to divorce Mary, but not just divorce her, to divorce her in the most loud, public way possible. Because her turning up pregnant brings dishonor to Joseph, her betrothed husband. So Joseph would be expected to make it clear to everyone, loudly, 
what Mary has done to make it clear to everyone that he's innocent, to humiliate Mary so that he, his honor is somehow restored. But we're told in the text that Joseph, he's described as a, a just man. It means a, a righteous man. It means Joseph has a, a genuine relationship with the Lord. Joseph is trying to live his life following the edicts of God's law. He's trying to live his life reflecting God's character. And what that means is that Joseph decides that he is going to show Mary mercy. He's not going to humiliate her. He's not going to crush her, even though that's going to mean he's going to have to bear some of this dishonor himself. But the text says, you'll notice how it's actually worded. It says that Joseph has decided to put her away secretly. That means he's going to divorce her, but he's decided that he's going to divorce her quietly. So just imagine Joseph lying in bed in Nazareth, maybe lying in bed in the very home that he's prepared for he and he thought Mary to one day live in, and he's, he's wrestling through all of this in his mind, and he's finally come to a conclusion. He's going to divorce her, but he's going to divorce her in a private way to preserve her honor as much as he can. And in the middle of all this, Joseph falls asleep. And that leads to the next part of the story. I want to see the dream. Look at how it's worded again in verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So this is the end of what must have been one of the worst days of Joseph's life. He falls asleep and God speaks to him. God sends an angel to Joseph with a couple pieces of information that completely change the story. First, God tells Joseph to take Mary. That means don't divorce her. Go forward with the wedding. Why? Well, the angel says, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, Joseph already knew that it wasn't his baby. He hadn't slept with Mary. But now he finds out that it wasn't any other man's baby either. This conception, in other words, was a divine miracle. This was an act of God. And just to be clear, that doesn't mean that God had had some sort of physical relationship with Mary. I need to say that because that's how the virgin birth is often misrepresented in Islam. It's even how the virgin birth is sometimes misrepresented among Mormons. Now this isn't a physical thing. Notice again, here's how the angel says it to, to Mary. This is going back to Luke 1. Listen to verses 34 and 35. This is when Gabriel first delivered this news to Mary. And here was Mary's response. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Mary is a virgin and she understands how this works. You, you don't have to be a biology major to understand the group with the lowest pregnancy rate is virgins, right? It hovers around 0%. So how in the world could she possibly be pregnant? Here's Gabriel's answer, verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. 
Therefore also that holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. So the angel saying God is going to do this by the Holy Spirit. Just like just like Genesis 1 presents the Holy Spirit as the the creative agent of the Trinity who is active bringing things to life at the dawn of creation. Well, we're being told that the Holy Spirit was going to do that same sort of work in the womb of Mary. And this is one of the miracles in the Bible that seems to face the most resistance. In fact, it's interesting, it's the two miracles that bookend Jesus' life that tend to get kicked against the most. You don't get a whole lot of detailed long arguments about why Jesus couldn't have healed people or walked on water. But when you talk about Jesus rising from the dead at one end, or Jesus being born of a virgin at the other end, you, you get lots of resistance. But, but if you start with Genesis 1, it's not really that hard to understand, is it? If, if there's a God who rules over the natural world, and if there's a God who created this natural world, well, it's not hard to accept that that God can reach down into this natural world whenever he wants to do whatever he wants. So I would just say that to, to point out. So if you were to say, I have a hard time believing in the resurrection, I have a hard time believing in the virgin birth, I would just say, I don't think you're being honest. Well, what you really have a hard time with isn't the virgin birth or the resurrection. What you have a hard time with is the biblical idea of God. If there's a God who made this world and ruled this world, it's not hard at all to recognize that God can reach down and do whatever he wants within his world. And if God was going to come into this world in flesh, can you think of a more appropriate way to do that to prove what was happening? Born of a woman to prove that he is indeed entering into humanity. He's fully man. But born without an earthly father. Born in a miraculous way to prove that he is also fully God. And you recognize, don't you, why this matters so much? Because the Bible tells us that that all of us are born under original sin. Meaning, we're all born under the consequences of Adam, our first father's sin. We inherit the results of what Adam did. The, the way I, I say it often is that Adam wasn't just the first man. Adam was the representative man. So that when Adam sinned, everyone who Adam represented, everyone who stood in line behind Adam as his progeny, we all now feel the repercussions of that sin. And we feel that in a couple of ways. We feel it first in what's called imputed sin. That means the guilt, the condemnation of Adam's sin is credited to all of his descendants. So that all of us as descendants of Adam fall under the guilt of the sin of Adam. It's just like we're, we're in bowl season in football. And imagine watching a game this afternoon and one of the offensive linemen jumps off sides. Well, who, who has to go back five yards? Just the left tackle? No, he jumps off sides, but he jumps off sides as the representative of the team in that moment. And the whole team deals with the repercussions of it. That's where we stand with Adam. Adam represented us and we feel the consequences. Not just imputed in guilt, but also inherited sin. Notice how both of these are described in Romans. Romans 5.18 describes this imputed 
guilt. Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, as through one man, that's Adam, as through Adam's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. We inherit condemnation because of the sin of Adam. And we also inherit a sin nature. Listen to Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience... Many were made. This is talking about the practical results. Many were made sinners. So we were made, practically speaking, sinners as a result of Adam's sin. We've, we've inherited a twisted nature from Adam. We come into this world with hearts that are tilted towards sin and that are tilted away from God. That's why, parents, you, you've never had to teach your kids to sin. You've never had to teach them to be selfish. You've never had to teach them to lie. All of that comes naturally because we are born with a sin nature. That comes to us from Adam, passed on from one generation to the next. But Jesus was born without a human father. That that line of descent that started with Adam and passes on to each following generation that line of descent was interrupted in Jesus. He didn't descend from Adam in the same way that we do, which means that he wasn't born under the same consequences of sin. He wasn't born bearing the guilt of that first sin. He wasn't born with a twisted nature. So, so God is working through this miraculous conception in the womb of Mary to filter out that sin nature. From Jesus, And then Jesus would go on to live the entirety of his life without ever actually committing a personal practical sin. So he was, he was fully human in every sense of the word, but fully human without sin. Again, the way that Christians have described it over the years is that he was both, he is both, fully man and fully God. So that if, if Ancestry.com could have gone in and done a DNA test of Jesus... It would have found conclusively that he is the son of Mary. The DNA would have tied him directly to Mary as his mother. He, he was carried in her womb for nine months just like any other baby. He was delivered through the birth canal of Mary just like every other baby. He had to be nursed and cared for and changed He had to learn to talk and he had to learn to walk. He had friends and then later he would have enemies, he would experience hunger, and he would experience cold, and he would experience thirst, and he would experience grief, and he would experience loneliness. He was fully man, and he is fully God. So that, this is, this is the second person of the Trinity. This is the eternal Son. This is, this is the one who the psalmist says... From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is that God taking on flesh and entering into his creation through the womb of this virgin girl. And did you notice how the angel also told Joseph exactly what this baby boy was to be named? Verse 21. And she'll bring forth a son... And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the, the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, 
Yeshua means Yahweh saves or God saves. Listen to what the angel says to the shepherds. This is part of what Stephen read earlier. Luke 2 verse 11 describing who this baby is who was born. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You get those three titles. This baby is the Lord. This baby is the Christ. That means the Messiah. And this baby is the Savior. What does, what does Savior imply? What implies there's something we need to be saved from? That doesn't Savior imply that there's some kind of imminent danger that you and I are in. So what's the danger? If you could have interviewed the Jewish people in Jesus' day and asked them, what they needed a Messiah to come and save them from, what would they have said? They would have said they needed to be saved from the Romans. They needed the Messiah to come in and save them from oppression, come and save them from occupation. They needed a Messiah to save them from their political situation. But the angel says to Joseph, you're going to call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. We use that word a lot in church, but... What does that actually mean? If, if, you were, if you were having to describe for someone outside of church life what sin is, how would you define sin? What is it? Is it the same as making a mistake? Is it breaking some ambiguous rule? What's sin? The, the way it's worded in the catechism that we teach our kids around here is sin is any thought, word, or deed that breaks God's law by omission or commission. What is the sin of omission? It is not being or doing what God requires. This is all our catechism. What is the sin of commission? It is doing what God forbids. So what is sin? Well, sin is any thought we think, any word we speak, any action we perform that fails to live up to the standard of God's law because God's law is a reflection of God's character. It's failing to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's failing to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's sin. And we are trapped in it. We can't break free from it. And we're condemned by it. God, as judge, has dropped his gavel and he has declared all of us, all of us, because of our sin, to be guilty. And we can't undo that, we can't make up for that. But this angel says that Jesus was coming to save his people from their sin. And of course he would do that by being the perfect representative. Whereas, whereas Adam failed as our representative and because of Adam's failure we all stand condemned, Jesus represented his people perfectly. That means he kept every facet of God's law. He obeyed absolutely every single command from God so that he had a flawless record. And then he went to the cross as if he was the guilty one. So that as, as Jesus hung on the cross, my long rap sheet of sins against God was pinned to the cross with him. And Jesus was punished in my place. So, so the Son of God was treated like a sinner so that those of us who really are sinners can now be treated as sons and daughters. 
And the amazing message of the gospel is that when you put your trust in Jesus, when you give your life in faith to Jesus and what he's done for you, this amazing exchange happens where all of your sin was credited to Jesus and punished in him at the cross. And on the other hand, Jesus' flawless record, his perfect law-keeping is credited to your account so that you're accepted. You stand righteous before God based on the work that Jesus has done for you. And notice, notice the way the angel says this. This wasn't he was coming with his fingers crossed sort of thing. That he's coming hoping there might be some people out there who might be saved through this. No, the angel says it very definitively. He will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew adds his commentary. As you're reading, when you get to verse 22, it's not the angel speaking anymore in verse 22. This is Matthew trying to help us connect the dots. And here's what Matthew says. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Matthew wants us to realize that this virgin birth thing wasn't something new. This hadn't come out of left field. God had said this was going to happen. Matthew loves doing this in his gospel. He quotes the Old Testament around 50 times in his gospel as a way of saying, hey, this is that. What you're seeing right now is exactly what God said he was going to do. And that's what Matthew is doing here. He, he quotes... The prophet he quotes from here is the prophet Isaiah. It's from Isaiah chapter 7, which was written over 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Now, interestingly, this is exactly the same time period that we're in right now in our studies on Sunday nights, where the nation of Israel has split into two countries. The kingly line of David has remained in the south. And this is a time period when the southern kingdom is facing extreme darkness. The northern kingdom has partnered with Syria and they're attacking from the north. The Assyrian empire is looming out there from the northeast and the king of Judah, Ahaz, is trying to decide where he's going to look for help. Is he going to trust the north? Is he going to trust Assyria? And God sends Isaiah to King Ahaz to go, don't trust them, trust God. Put your trust in God, Ahaz. But Ahaz is a wicked king and he won't trust God. And so God sends Isaiah back to Ahaz. And in that conversation, Isaiah drops this nugget of hope. Here's something in the middle of all the darkness. Here's something that God's people could be looking for. There was going to come a day, God says through Isaiah, when a virgin was going to give birth to a son. So, so this virgin birth thing wasn't something new. What Isaiah is doing, I mean, excuse me, what, what Matthew is doing here is he's wanting us to see that the virgin birth is actually, it's actually God keeping a very old promise. A promise that he had made 700 years before. And if it, if it hasn't already been clear to you who this baby is, Isaiah said that he would be called Emmanuel. You hear that L at the end of that. That's, that's Elohim. That's the name of God. And the first part means with us. So 
Emmanuel means God with us. Now think about what's being communicated there. We saw just a minute ago that the name Jesus means God saves. Okay, but how would God save? Would God save by sending an angel? Would God, would God save by sending a prophet? Well, here's the answer. God was going to save by coming to us himself. I was listening to a, a former missionary who was giving a talk, and he was, his missionary work had been done in, in a Muslim nation. And he was talking about a conversation that he had had with a group of Muslim men one evening. It was it's all happening during Ramadan. Ramadan is the, the holy month for Muslims. They, they fast during the daylight hours and they break the fast in the evening. And he said it was one evening where a group of men were just breaking their fast during Ramadan. And they were at a restaurant and he ended up sitting at a table with these men as they were sharing this meal. And in the course of the meal, the Muslim men asked him what he believed about God. So he said he took the opportunity to, to describe for them who God is as he's revealed himself in the Bible. And he made the point that the pinnacle of this revelation about God is seen in the person of Jesus. That Jesus is God in human flesh coming to us. Well, when he made that point, the Muslim men began to push back. And the, the idea in Islam of God taking on flesh to enter creation is considered blasphemous. So they had this long conversation about the incarnation. And he said toward the end of it, he kind of, in their mind, changed the subjects. And he said to this group of men, he started talking about his wife. That he had been married just a few years. And he began telling these men how much he loved his wife. And he said, you know, when the day came that I decided that I was going to marry my wife, that I was going to propose to her, he said to the men, how should I have done that? Should I have, should I have sent someone to her to ask her if she would marry me or should I have gone to her in person? And he said, the men, not quite connecting the dots on where he was going, said, well, you, you should go to her in person. They said, in matters of love, you have to do that in person. And he said he transitioned back then and said that that's the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is that God did not send someone to us. In matters of love, you have to go in person. And so God came to us himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is only through him that we can know God. It is only through him that we can stand right before God. Make, make sure you hear that. I know there's all sorts of wonderful philanthropic things going on during Christmas. But there is no amount of toys you can donate to Toys for Tots that will make you right with God. There's no amount of money you can drop in the Salvation Army bucket that will make you right with God. The only way we stand right with God is through faith. And God incarnate. Let me say one other thing and we'll close. I know we think of, of Christmas and the holidays as such a happy, joyful time. But I also realize that the holidays can be a very dark time for some people. It's a time of depression. It's a time of angst. We have fantasy views that everybody else is happy and everybody else is with family. And you can feel in a, a very palatable way loneliness in the holidays. I would just remind you of what the Christmas story reminds us of. In Jesus, listen, in Jesus we have God with us. Which means that through faith in Christ we're never alone. God, through Jesus, 
is always with his people. So who is this Jesus whose birth we, we celebrate? He is veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He is the incarnate deity. He is, as Wesley said, the offspring of a virgin's womb. And all of our hopes, all of our faith as Christians is pinned to him. Let's bow together for a word of prayer.